the word of the Lord from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear hearers in Christ, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. 
Peter's life with Jesus begins in water, in a boat, back in Luke chapter 5. There, because the crowd is pressing Jesus into the sea, he teaches them from offshore, from Peter's boat. And once he's finished, Jesus tells Peter to let down his nets in the deep. And Peter objects because they've caught nothing all night. Nevertheless, he obeys, and they haul in so many fish that the nets begin to break and the boats begin to sink. It's truly a miracle of God's kindness and provision for the Lord of land and sea. Well, he's right there with Peter in the boat. But do you remember Peter's reaction? It's not joy. It's not gratitude. It's fear. There in Luke 5, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Astonished by the Almighty Christ's power and provision, Peter is acutely aware that he is unholy and should be nowhere near holy God, and so he wants to get away from him. Now, in John 21, three years later, we find Peter in a boat once again. He's done the most reasonable thing for guys to do while they're waiting by water. He's gone fishing. He and some of the other disciples have spent the night casting nets and, go figure, they've caught nothing. Now, at daybreak, the unrecognized Savior stands on shore and tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. They do so, and the net fills with so many large fish they cannot haul them all in. It's John who says it is the Lord, and this time Peter doesn't cower away from Jesus. Instead, he throws his coat back on, jumps in the water, and swims for shore, swims for the Savior, because the Savior of sinners is standing there. And a sinful man like Peter now knows that there is no better place for a sinner to be than with the Lord who has died to take away sins, the Lord who makes unholy people into his Holy people. It's worth noting that the risen Jesus meets them with a meal, some charcoal broiled catch of the day, and some fish. Not only that, but John takes a moment to point out that Jesus takes the bread and gives it to them. This has happened also in Emmaus in Luke 24 where the risen Jesus took over that meal, took bread and broke it and gave it to two disciples. It's as if the gospel writers want to make sure that you associate the risen Christ with a meal for you. How about that? Then we arrive at this conversation between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? He asks him three times, slightly differently each time, until Peter is grieved that Jesus keeps asking him. The best guess for the grief is that it brings back bitter memories. Peter denied Jesus three times after Jesus forewarned him, and now Jesus asks him three times if he loves him. That's probably not a coincidence. But why does Jesus keep asking the question? I mean, sinners often remind others of how they failed in the past, and this is often a passive-aggressive way of saying, even though I said I forgave you, I actually still hold this against you. But that's not Jesus. He's forgiven Peter. 
He's spoken that absolution of peace to him already. Jesus doesn't harbor grudges. The Lord remembers Peter's sins no more. So why does Jesus ask the question? Perhaps it's because Peter remembers his sin. And as long as those denials trouble him, the devil will use him to make him doubt his love for Jesus as well as Jesus' love for him. It's one of those funny things about people. Impenitent sinners are far faster to forgive themselves than Jesus is, while penitent sinners are far slower to forgive themselves than Jesus is. Here, then, is the Savior crucified and risen. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, soon to ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God in order to rule over all things. Here he is taking time to pull one penitent sinner aside and restore him. He doesn't turn his back, but speaks repeatedly. Where he speaks, he is at work to save. He asks if Peter loves him so that Peter can confess out loud that he does. Not only that, but Jesus declares that Peter is his instrument. He tells Peter that he still has a holy calling. Feed my lambs, he says. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter is not forsaken nor even demoted. Jesus reinforces that Peter is a forgiven sinner who is called to be his people. Peter's life is to glorify God. And so is Peter's death. Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John adds, This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus hints to Peter how Peter will eventually die, but we don't hear how Peter actually dies in Scripture. Tradition tells us that he was crucified, perhaps upside down. We have no real reason to argue. However, tradition is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Within Scripture, I do find the last story of Peter in Acts to be fascinating and on point, See if you can spot any parallels between this account and Holy Week. Peter is arrested by Herod during the Passover, and it's Herod's intent to kill him. Imprisoned, Peter is considered as good as dead. When he sleeps in a heavily guarded prison, an angel wakes him by striking him in the side and saying, Follow me. The angel leads him past the guards and out the gate. Peter then makes his way to where believers have gathered to pray. And when a servant girl tells him that Peter is alive, freed, and outside, they believe the girl is mad. When the door is open and they see him, they are amazed. Then he speaks to them and goes elsewhere. The account ends in Acts chapter 12 with the news that when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, but where the soldiers who guarded Jesus' tomb were bribed to spread lies, Herod orders that these guards be put to death. 
And after that, Peter almost completely disappears from Acts as the story of Paul takes over. He speaks once in Acts 15, but his rescue in Acts 12 is really his swan song. He endures this arrest and escape that can't help but remind him of Jesus' arrest and death and resurrection. And then he goes on his way as one whom Jesus has forgiven and called. He'll write two epistles that are included in the New Testament. We don't know for sure when or where or how he dies. But we know that his life has lived to God's glory. And his death has died to God's glory too. Now, it is entirely possible, probable even, that your life with Jesus began in water at a font. And where Jesus spoke words to draw fish out of water for Peter, Jesus spoke words to wash sin off of you. Do not dismiss this wonder, but marvel. It is an astonishing act of love that the Lord of heaven and earth became flesh to die for the sins of the world But the Lord is not content to be so general. And so, as he took time especially to restore Peter personally, so he has focused his attention specifically upon you. He wrote your name in the book of life. He engraved it on the palms of his hands. This is reflected in the usual practice of baptism. We don't say, I baptize you, generic person among the billions. We use names because the Lord knows you by name. And as the Lord repeatedly restored Peter in our text, the Lord continues to restore you to forgive your sins and strengthen your faith by his holy word. You might be tempted to equate a worship service to a lecture where you sit in a crowd while a speaker drones on who doesn't know your name and doesn't care to. That's hardly the case. The Lord knows his people by name, and he knows that you are here. He sends forth his Holy Spirit by his word into your ears. He says, I've died for you, and I am risen again. I am your strength against temptation. And where you have trouble forgiving yourself, I have forgiven all of your sins and hold none of them against you. If the Lord forgives you, then you are his holy child. And if you are his holy child, then he has given you holy stuff to do. As you await Christ's return in glory, you are not merely in a holding pattern, but the Lord has given you purpose. He has appointed you to be his servant by the various callings he's given. Those daily tasks and vocations like life in the household or a pesky day job, are not how you pass the time until the Lord decides to make use of you. They are how the Lord is using you as his instrument even now. You need not be an apostle to do holy work. What makes your work holy is that you are made holy by the blood of Christ. Your tasks may seem frightfully ordinary for this to be true, But that is because God is a God of order who usually works through ordinary means, ordinary people, and ordinary callings. As one who is forgiven and cleansed, repentant, and believing, your entire life is thus glorifying to God. And likewise, 
Your death is glorifying to God. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, says Psalm 116. And it is perhaps here where it is more difficult to believe without seeing than anywhere else. But the one who dies in the faith is not dead. The death of the Christian's body is the planting of a seed so that it can be raised up again, far greater than it ever was in the world. And when a believer dies, Christians gather not only to mourn or recall the past, but to confess with confidence that those who die in Christ live even now and will be raised up body and all on the last day. However Peter died, his death glorified God because he was following Jesus. However it is given to you to die, your death as a Christian will do the same because Jesus has made you his follower. Even if that glory goes unnoticed in this world, just wait until heaven exalts when the Lord calls you out of your grave. All this is why St. Paul could write, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ has died, and Christ lives again to be your Lord both now and forevermore. By his word he bids you follow me, and within that call is an everyday ongoing blessed promise. The Lord knows you by name. He has redeemed you by his blood. He continues to forgive and sanctify you by his word and his supper. And because he sanctifies you, he rejoices in your works. As I've said before, your daily works are like a kid's drawings that parents value so highly that they place them on the refrigerator for all to see. And likewise, your life is full of refrigerator art to God, no matter how ordinary it may seem to you, because he has made you his holy child at the cost of his only begotten son. Follow me, says Jesus. He said it to Peter, and as one of the apostles, Peter had an extraordinary life. Still, he had the same sins you do, and the same Savior. So Jesus says to you, follow me. He says that to you because he's called you to be his. By his word and work, he enlivens you to follow him in life, in death, in the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.